If you would, go ahead and open your Bible with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27. Uh, We've got this week and one more week uh, left and we'll be done with the book of Acts and all God's people said... Well, that was not excitement at all, so that's great. Uh, We're going to go back to Acts chapter 1 and start, (laughs) not really, (laughs) not really. Um, We've got this week, we've got uh, our candlelight service next week, and then we're going to wrap up the book of Acts on uh, New Year's Eve uh, here last week, and then we're going to be jumping into a brand new series I want to encourage you to prepare for. We're going to be talking about everyday theology as we look at one of the smallest books in the New Testament going into the new year to prepare for our launch as Mission Life Church. Uh, and it is coming, church. We, we are like 10 weeks away uh, from being Mission Life Church. Um, visibly in the community, though things are already uh, happening behind the scenes, paperwork is getting signed. Uh, I just, I have to share something with you though. Uh, a huge, uh, huge thing happened uh, like a week or two ago, right? Amy, correct me if I'm wrong date-wise, uh, but the Great Lakes region or the GLR as we affectionately call them, our oversight for the church outside of here, um, for the, the Wesleyan church here in our area, Uh, They have decided uh, not only to cover our legal fees uh, to incorporate us as a new church and take care of that for us, uh, but they've also sold the property and everything in it for one dollar to our church. Um, They sold the entire property for one dollar, one dollar, a single dollar. Um, the transaction will hopefully be made this week as we cut a check for $1 uh, to the GLR, um, and then we will uh, legally own everything here in the building under Mission Life Church. That's a huge blessing. Uh, the GLR has been so great to us, and so I'm, I'm grateful for them. Now, church, uh, today I'd like to start out by sharing with you a story. Um, not to age anybody, but how many of you were alive in the year 1969? Okay, a good portion of you. Great. In 1969, in past Christian Mississippi, a group of people were preparing for uh, what we in Florida call hurricane parties. That's where you get a bunch of food and you play games while a hurricane's about to crash into the state in which you live. Uh, In fact, there's a store called Publix uh, in the south. It's a grocery chain. Yeah, woo, yes, yeah. Uh, best subs in the globe uh, come from Publix. Uh, they used to make hurricane party cakes uh, where you could come and buy a cake so you could celebrate the hurricane that was about to hit. Well, in 1969, there was a group of people that were preparing for a hurricane party in the face of a storm named Hurricane Camille. Uh, for some of you older uh, saints here in the congregation, you might remember the storm. Were these group of people ignorant of the danger? Were these group of people overconfident? Uh, Did they let their egos and their pride influence their decision to stay in their location? We will never ever know what was running, truly running through their minds. But what we do know about Hurricane Camille is that the wind outside was howling uh, around the Richelieu apartments when the police chief, Jerry Peralta, pulled up uh, just as it was becoming dark. Facing the beach less than 250, away, 250 feet away from the surf, the apartment was in direct line of the impending danger from Hurricane Camille. A man stood on the second floor balcony and he waved at the police chief. 
The police chief began to attempt to get his attention saying, you guys need to clear out of here as quickly as you can. The storm is getting worse. But as the man sat there, others joined him on the balcony and they began to laugh at the orders of the police chief. One man said that this is our land and if you want us off of it, you're going to have to arrest us and take us to jail. Now Peralta couldn't truly arrest anyone for them being in their own property or on their own property. He was unable to persuade anybody to leave and so he decided he was going to write down the names of all of the next of kin of all 20 people that were gathered for this hurricane party. The people laughed as he took down the names because they had been warned, but none of them had any intention of leaving. Church, at 10.15 p.m. that evening, the front wall of the hurricane came ashore. Scientists clocked Hurricane Camille's wind speed as a Cat 5, the worst hurricane possible. At more than 205 miles per hour, which to this day is still the strongest winds on record. Raindrops, they said, were hitting with the force of bullets. And waves off of the Gulf Coast were cresting at 28 feet above sea level. 28 feet. News reports later showed that the worst damage came at a little settlement known as Pass Christian, Mississippi where 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the Richelieu apartments. Nothing was left of that three-story structure except for the cement foundation. The only survivor in past Christian was a five-year-old boy that was found clinging to a mattress the following day. His entire family had been killed. In this story, the individuals exhibit a lack of wisdom and humility. They ignored the warnings. They dismissed the imminent danger that they were faced with. The Bible encourages us, on the other hand, to seek knowledge. The Bible tells us to listen to advice and to act with prudence. In this situation specifically, the refusal to acknowledge the severity of this hurricane and the prideful insistence on staying led to a tragic consequence. This story really should serve as an example about the dangers of arrogance, the importance of humility, even the consequences of ignoring warnings. Today we're going to see a similar situation occur in our passage of Scripture. So if you would, I'm actually going to start in verse 31 of chapter 26 this morning. Right at the tail end of the previous chapter, Verse 31 starts out by saying this, Acts 26, 31, and it says, Yep. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Chapter 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramantium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now I want you to stop right there because right away as you follow this chapter, problems begin to set in. And this really was Paul's life in so many ways, if you think about it. Nothing ever went according to plan. 
I mean, how many of you have ever felt like that? Nothing is going according to plan. You see things going a certain way, and then nothing ever seems to really finalize going that way. And by the time in this chapter you get to verse number six, they have had to change ships and get into a bigger vessel that's cumbersome and heavy. I want you to look at verse seven. Because in verse seven, it starts out by saying what? We have sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the winds did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. They sailed slowly. And you get to verse number eight, and they come to this place called Fair Havens. And Fair Havens was a small little hole in the wall village. I want you to think Motel 6. Tiny town, single blinking light. This is Fair Havens. This is where they've come to. And the captain of the ship, he wants to go to Crete. He wants to go where all the money is. He wants to go where all the things are happening. And this is where the entire story begins to take a really bad turn. And we have what I'm going to call this morning the first of two gracious warnings. I want you to look with me at verse number 10. Saying, so Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ships, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south winds blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Now the first thing I would like us to note this morning for you note takers, gracious warnings often come through the most unlikely people and they are not to be ignored. They're not to be ignored. If you noticed here in the text, the men decided that Paul was wrong as soon as the winds changed in the text. They thought, well, what does this guy know? Paul's not a sailor. I mean, let me emphasize to us this morning that God will frequently employ individuals in challenges to capture our attention. I've been a Christian for roughly 30 years of my life. I've been in ministry for over a decade. And throughout that time period, there have been instances during ordinary conversations where someone's words have resonated so deeply with inside of me, it has prompted me to ponder and ask, Lord, are you trying to communicate to me through this? Are you trying? Is, is this what you said similarly, church? And I don't know if it is with you, but when I've been faced with difficulties in my life, I have come to realize very quickly that God often utilizes those situations to, to foster my comprehension or spiritual growth in some way. But for some of us, but for some of us, we don't want to listen to the people. Well, we think we don't want to worry about the problem. I mean, unless God is going to write that problem in the sky in front of me, or if he's not going to specifically spell it out, then we just go with whatever we feel. 
We just go with whatever we think is, is best. And then the winds of our life begin to shift and circumstances briefly appear favorable and it leads us to think that everything is fine. I've also found in that same situation or situations in life that it's, it's crucial for us to acknowledge that there's always going to be somebody who will tell us what we want to hear when we want to hear it. There's always going to be that person. But the reality is this morning is that when we reflect honestly with ourselves and with God, we may recognize numerous instances when we've completely disregarded God's warnings to us. I mean, through someone, through a sermon, through a Bible study, through maybe your even quiet time, something that you've seen on TV or a book I mean, there are individuals that we are about to encounter in the text that are experiencing the very consequences of their choices. And we must grasp today that this very sermon could serve as a warning for you. Today, right now, these very words that are being spoken, this very portion of Scripture might be God's way of trying to capture your attention. And the question is, Are you truly listening? Are you truly listening this morning? Or are you merely feeling the wind and assuming that everything is well? I mean, it's worth noting that similar to the wisdom that a sailor truly possesses, the nature of the wind is such that it seldom remains in our favor for an extended period of time. It's going to twist and turn. And so for you note takers, you gold star students, I want you to write this down. When you choose to go against the gracious warnings of God, you end up in situations and circumstances that are beyond your control. You do. Every time without fail. And we're going to see here in just a moment that these guys begin to sail straight into a hurricane. And had they listened and had they waited and had they heeded the warnings that Paul gave, they would have had a very different outcome. So I want you to look now at verse number 14. Luke records for us, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with, a dif- with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they had supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, uh, do not miss this. It says all hope of our, being be, uh, of our being saved was at last abandoned. It was abandoned. Did you notice at the end there how bad the situation truly was for them? Luke said we had lost all hope. There's nothing left. We, we don't even know that we're going to be saved. The ship is being pulled further and further and further out to sea. And we have no idea where we truly are. We've lost all sense of direction. Does that resonate with you this morning? 
Does it resonate with your current emotional state? You seemed to be trapped in an ongoing storm. A storm that doesn't let up. You're in the midst uh, of hurricanes, turmoil, and you're unable to escape it. Have you ever felt like there's a, a pervasive sense of aimlessness? A feeling that life is just spiraling out of control. And you begin to question, why is this even happening? God, why are you allowing this to happen? Did I, did I do something wrong? God, are you even there? Are you even here in the midst of my pain? Are you here in the midst of my storm? Are you here in the midst of my turmoil and the loss of my spouse or, or my wayward child? Are you here? Are you here, God? Because I can't feel you. Where are you? Have you ever been there? I, I have. I've been in a dark, dark place. And it's going to lead me to say this to you. Church, Christian, God has a purpose in your storm. God has a purpose in your storm. Whatever that storm may look like, God has a purpose in it. Because before we go any further, before we, we dive into the text, before we look at anything there is something significant that you and I have to understand. And I don't have time. Time is not going to permit me to unpack all of this this morning. But I will say this. Not every storm that you walk through should be perceived as a form of punishment. Not every storm that you walk through is punishment. Because often our expectations is that life should follow a specific course. It should look a certain way. And consequently, when things begin to deviate from the path that, that we have set in our head, or when, we've, when we've disregarded the gracious warnings of God and storms begin to arise in our life, the immediate assumption is, okay, I'm supposed I'm being punished. God, what did I do wrong? What, where did I go wrong? What even happened? But it's important to broaden our perspective this morning and recognize that storms serve various purposes. And so I'm going to make a blanket statement this morning that we must understand all Christians suffer. All Christians suffer. All of them. Every single one. You have either suffered you are suffering right now or you will suffer. My, my pastor friend and mentor used to say to me that you are either in the midst of a storm, you just came out of a storm, or you're about to go back into one. That's what he used to say all the time to us. And you know, Luke recorded for us already, and it's probably something that we overlooked through this journey, but 13 chapters back in Acts, Acts chapter 14, Luke said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Meaning that you will go through situations and circumstances in this life before God brings you to perfection. And it's going to be, church, unfortunately, it's going to be from the moment that you are born until the moment that God takes you, you will be walking through different storms in this life. And that reality should be a stark reminder that you and I have not reached the new heavens and the new earth. It should be a reminder this morning that we have not come to our new Jerusalem where there's no more tears. And there's no more pain and there's no more mourning and there's no more death. And that hasn't arrived for us yet. It hasn't come yet. And just because we experience suffering as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, just because it's there doesn't mean that that suffering is random. And all God's people said, your suffering is not random. And at the same time, I stand before you this morning and I recognize that suffering is multifaceted. It looks different for all different people, but it all serves a purpose. All of it does. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere does the Bible oversimplify our experience of suffering by suggesting that it all fits into one category and it all looks the same way. It doesn't. In fact, the Bible acknowledges the diverse ways in which you and I suffer and how they manifest in our lives. There's a verse that probably, and before you put it up there, there's a verse that's going to hit the screen in just a moment. A verse that you probably, for you Christians that have been in church any length of time, you could probably quote the verse that's about to hit the screen. But Paul articulates exactly what I'm trying to tell you this morning. Paul has an understanding of the different types of suffering that the Christian walks through. And he said this, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. You guys know this verse, right? We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Paul is saying, if you would leave that verse right there for a moment. You probably have never seen this before in the text. But Paul, in these two verses, is describing several different forms of suffering. He's talking about mental suffering and physical suffering and emotional suffering and and spiritual suffering and how each one is different from the other. But he says that in the midst of those different types of suffering, you are not driven to despair. You're not crushed. You're not forsaken. You're not destroyed. Why? Because as a believer, Jesus Christ is with you and has a purpose for you in every single kinds of suffering that you walk through. It doesn't matter what it is, church. But that verse right there, it represents the distinct ways that we are going to encounter suffering. When we undergo hardships in this life, it oftentimes involves a combination of what Paul is talking about here. Have you been to that place where you felt like you were afflicted in every single way? 
Have you been in that place where you were so perplexed about whatever it is that was going on in your life? Where you felt at every single turn you were receiving persecution from somebody? You turned to people and you thought that they were there to help you and then you felt like you were just persecuted by them. Have you, have you ever felt like you've been so struck down? You have nothing left in you to give? There's something about suffering that I believe the church has failed in. And it's the fact that suffering, in the midst of suffering, the Christian needs community. The Christian needs community. Because the the church was never designed to be some loosely connected group of independent lone rangers. It really wasn't. Uh, Paul challenged the individualistic mindset when he told us in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Meaning that discipleship and small groups and, and, and home groups and Bible studies, those should be a thing. Why? Because the church is intended to be a haven for those who are suffering. It's intended for that. When a member... When a member of the body of Christ, I'm not talking about membership here in a specific church. When a member of the body of Christ is in pain, the church is supposed to provide support. Not not just the pastor, but the church. I mean, the body of Christ is supposed to provide support. When when a, a member of the body is discouraged, the church is supposed to offer encouragement. When a member of the body is in need, the church is supposed to come alongside of them and support them. Why do you think we were commanded in the book of Hebrews, as long as it's called today, as right now, exhort one another. Exhort them, meaning to encourage and challenge them and to spur them on to love and good works. Why were we called to do that? Because the church, the body, was one of the tools that God uses body. You know, there, there is this communal response that reflects the very essence of the law of Christ being fulfilled when the church does what it's supposed to. There's an interconnectedness and a support that should exist within the body of believers. Why am I saying this to you? Because when everybody's here, and if everybody online were to show up here, we would be of a, ch- a church between 80 and 100 people. Do you know how many people out of that 80 to 100 are walking through things that you know nothing about? That feel like they're completely alone in their storm. Imagine you went the rest of your life having no one ever. You were an island under yourself. Do you know how miserable that would be? I've been in that place. We have been in that place where we felt we were completely alone and oftentimes ministry feels like that. But then there have been these times where the Lord has brought people around us and have lifted us up at just the moment that we needed it. Do you guys remember in the Old Testament when the Israelites went to war? And Moses was standing on the edge of the mountain. 
And he had his, his arms were completely raised in the air. And every time his arms were raised completely in the air, the Israelites would, would win. They would, they would take over the others. And his arms became so heavy and they began to fall. And every time his, his arms began to fall, Israel, the Israelites would die. And then they would start to falter. And there were these two men that stepped up to Moses and each one took an arm and they held them up so that the Israelites would be successful ultimately. But it wasn't so much about whether or not the Israelites were going to win the war. It was more about the support of, of godly people coming alongside of you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your storm and your shipwreck saying, I'm here to help bear this with you. Let me help raise you up. And so if you get nothing today, nothing at all from anything that has been said thus far, please walk away knowing that you have a responsibility as the church to be the church, to, starting right here. Starting right here being the church. And on the other side of that coin, you're not alone. You are not alone. Now, I want to say something else about suffering. And this is the part that most people don't like. And it's the part, because it's a part of the sanctification process. That's why we don't like it. But our suffering, the things that we walk through in this life, it really is there to equip us for the work of ministry. That's why it's there. It's to equip us to minister to other people. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. He said that God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any way afflicted with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We ourselves. And the link between experiencing suffering and equipping for ministry lies in how the Holy Spirit uses empathy and understanding in our lives. How many of you in here know a man by the name of David Paulison? Author, David Paulison. No? Not a few of you? A few of you? Well, I want you to... He wrote a book that I read... Oh, shoot. Probably two years ago. Now, it's December. Two years ago, right early in the midst of... the of receiving the cancer diagnosis, I remember reading this book and it's called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. And I want you to see what he says. It's going to come to the screen for you. It says that when you've passed through your own fiery trials and you've found God to be true to what he says, you have real help to offer. You have firsthand experience of both his sustaining grace and his purposeful design. He has kept you through pain he has reshaped you more into his image. What you are experiencing from God, you can give away in increasing measure to others. You're learning both the tenderness and the clarity necessary to help sanctify another person's deepest distress. I know that's a lot to take in. A lot. I think I read that portion of the book 15 or 20 times because I needed it to make sense to me. 
I needed to know that whatever it is that I was going to walk through in this life, God could use it to minister to somebody else. And if just one individual was saved, their soul was changed because of God's grace and mercy through some form of suffering or persecution that I walked through, then all glory goes to God. Amen? And I say all of this to say to you this. Where there is suffering... There is a battle. And it is a battle for someone's soul. Where there is suffering, there is a battle. It's not going to hit the screen for you. But that battle is over someone's soul. Whether it's your own in the midst of your suffering or it's someone near and dear to you. There is a battle over that person's soul. And I have found that we will often draw closer to God in a storm than when in the calm. Because storms and shipwrecks really reveal who we are. This may seem comical to you, uh, but someone told me, probably my second or third year in ministry, that Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's inside of them until they're in hot water. You don't. Storms and shipwrecks will reveal who we are. You know, when, when God wants to grow you in your faith... When, when God wants to reveal to you what your heart is truly like, he will allow you to be placed in circumstances and situations that you and I are not accustomed to and we cannot control. He puts us, he puts us there or he allows us to be put there. And at the same time, and I don't have time to break down the sovereignty of God this morning. It will not, to not, time will not permit uh, me to do so. But at the same time that we are allowed to be in places that we are not accustomed to and that we cannot control, God is still 100% in charge. Amen? And that includes the authority over the storm in which you walk through and the suffering and the struggles and the trials. God is still 100% in charge. However, you and I are 100% responsible for what we do and how we respond. We are 100% responsible And so what you and I do matters. And what we need to remember is that there are always two ditches in every storm. We can become so passive that we say, well, if God's 100% in charge, it doesn't matter what I do. Or or we can think, well, I'm 100% responsible, so it's up to me. And then a mess ensues, typically, is what happens. Because we thought for some way... Uh, that we were smart enough <laughs> without the power of God to get through a situation or a circumstance. And it, in the church, I want to say this to you this morning. It's not one ditch or the other. It's both. And that causes us to take a practical and a biblical approach to our storms. God is 100% in charge and I am 100% responsible for what I do and how I respond to every situation that I walk through. And I'm going to say this to you. Because we have a tendency to misuse this verse. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to His purpose. Commercial break. Don't use this verse when somebody loses a loved one. Don't, Don't even let the words fly out of your mouth. 
we know that all things work together for good. To them what? That love who? To those that love God. And to them who are called what? According to whose purposes? His, meaning God. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That verse does not say that everything that happens to us is good. It says that God is going to work it out for our good, but ultimately for His glory. For His glory. You and I may never know the reason why something happens or why we have to walk through a storm, but we know God is going to work it for our good and His glory as long as we love God and we are called according to His purposes. And so I want you to know this, church. I want you to write this down. The storms of life may seemingly hide God's face, but they never hinder God's purposes. Never do they hinder God's purposes. And so I'm going to say this one more time. Please do not see your suffering in every storm that you walk through as the lens of punishment only. We live in a sin-cursed world. And then suffering comes oftentimes because of sin and sinful choices and sinful people's choices. If you think in, in the terms of I'm being punished only, you will become very frustrated and angry with God. That when you see an evil person go unpunished and good people get the brunt of bad things, you will become angry with God. I've probably spoken to a half dozen or more devout atheists. You want to know what I've found out about all of those individuals that I've encountered? There was some hurt, pain, mistrust, abuse that happened in their life from someone who was a Christian. The loss of life. Something occurred and the individual walked away from the Lord because they saw it as some form of punishment. I did something wrong and this happened to me. I can't follow a, a God who would allow this. All of them. Every person that I've encountered that was a devout atheist. Bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. And you know what? God punished his son for sin and he has a place reserved for everlasting punishment for those who don't follow him. But right here, right now, we have grace. We have grace. We have grace as we suffer the consequences of living in a sinful world. And that really should give us a window a window of understanding as we read the rest of the chapter that God has a purpose in the storm. And this is, this is the reason that Paul warned the sailors. Why did Paul remind them to listen and why Paul warns them again later? So I want you to pick up now in verse 21. He says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and 
Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. I want you to stop right there. So the second thing I want you to note this morning is that God's presence is in the midst of the storm. So we saw that God has a purpose, but now God's presence. You know, Paul anchored himself in the very presence of his Savior. And in the midst of scared men, and in the midst of deep struggle, in the midst of loss of hope, Paul himself was incredibly peaceful. Paul was not passive. He was not panicked. He was peaceful. I mean, how on earth? You're in the midst of a hurricane in a boat. In the midst of a hurricane in a boat. Your boat's being rocked all over. People are being injured. The boat's being smashed amongst the rocks. And you are sitting peacefully telling the men, don't worry. God's not going to kill us. It's going to be okay. How? How on earth is Paul peaceful in the midst of that storm? You want to know why? You want to know how Paul is peaceful? He told us. He told us how he was peaceful, but he told us in a completely different book of the Bible how he could live peacefully. When he told us in Philippians chapter 4, let your moderation be known unto all men. Let it be known, the Lord is at hand. Be careful. Or in, in the way that one of my life verse reads is this right here. A portion of scripture that I memorized and read over and over. I've probably read this portion of scripture 150,000 times in my life. You guys know that when I was a, a child that I struggled with severe anxiety. Over the top anxiety. And so much so that I had physical ramifications because of my anxiety. My nose would bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed, like unstoppably bleed. I would have, I had a high blood pressure. I was put on medication when I was, I think, nine or ten years old because they were afraid that I could either have a stroke or a heart attack because of my anxiety. As a child, as a child. And I remember after being eight years on medication, I had a pastor that sat with me and he said to me, Josh, we have to let the word of God rule and reign in your heart. He was a pastor I didn't want to see. I didn't want to meet with a 65-year-old man that was best friends with my grandparents. I really didn't. His name was Pastor Raymond. And he taught, preached at a, at a little dinky um, Baptist church in Wikiwachi, Florida, a place that you probably have never heard of. And he sat down with me and he said, Josh, we, we have to let the word of God rule and reign in our heart because the word of God is more powerful than your anxiety. The word of God is more powerful than that storm that you feel when you're overwhelmed in your mental state. And so he brought me to this portion of scripture. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything. It means every situation and every circle. But in everything. By prayer. In supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And Paul said that when you do this, 
something happens. He says the peace that passes all understanding, what does it do? It guards your heart and your mind. But it tells you how. It guards your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the linchpin for the peace in our lives. His presence in our lives is what gives us the calm that we need in the midst of whatever storm you and I are facing. His presence. His, God's indwelling presence inside of us. And it all started because we went to Him in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. We went to Him in prayer. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but you need to know this. If you are here this morning and you are walking through some storm or shipwreck, it, it, may be, it may be really small, comparative to other things. But if you're walking through something this morning, it does not matter what it is. I can tell you with surety that God's peace that passes all understanding is readily available and accessible because I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own life. And it starts with living a life surrendered. It starts with living a life surrendered. Paul is probably, in my opinion, outside of Jesus Christ, of course, is probably one of the most incredible characters in the Bible. Individuals, because of how, not only how he lived, uh, but because of the, the things that the Holy Spirit inspired in him to write to us. I want you to look at verse 23. Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, and it will be exactly as I have been told. Did you notice the language that Paul employed? Did you notice? He says, to, to whom I belong and whom I worship. It's his covenant language that Paul is using in the text. He's saying, I belong to God. I'm, I'm a child of God. And I'm not going to despair because God's not punishing me. God's not abandoned me. He's here. I spoke to him. How many of you in conversation have ever said, this is my wife? Or this is my husband, or this is my son, or my. Have you guys ever used that terminology? That terminology is relational intimacy. We know them on some sort of intimate level. They belong to me, or I to them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Do not fear, men, because I know who I belong to and I know who I worship. I'm one of his children. Me. I'm in a covenant relationship with God and I just spoke to him. I just spoke to him. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. I am his and he is mine. 
I'm his child and he's working through this storm, whatever it is. And so Christian, this morning, church, friend, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, there is nothing that you will ever go through that God has not experienced. Nothing. Every single human suffering Jesus faced. And in the end, when he was abandoned by God on the cross, he did so so that you and I would never have to experience the horror and the hopelessness of a life without God. And so our storms are often opportunities for God's children to give hope and strength to those who have none. I want to look at one last portion of Scripture here at the very end to close this out. Let's look at verse 27. And when the 14th night had come, two weeks as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that they might run onto the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the boat, of the ship's boat and let it go. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, all, uh, were, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And we're going to stop right there. You know, Paul encouraged the men in the midst of the storm. He encouraged them. He entered the boat at the beginning as a prisoner, and now he's leading the entire boat in prayer at the very end of this chapter. He was a prisoner, and now he's leading everybody in prayer. I mean, the entire scene, if you, if you think about it, it's mind-boggling to think about this. A bunch of Roman soldiers and rough sailors and scared prisoners are all under the steady spirit of Paul at the end. The presence and the very peace of a merciful God was experienced through the testimony of a faithful servant. And man, isn't that what the world needs, dear church? They need to see people who know who they are. They need to see people who know their purpose. They need to see people who know who they serve anchored in the presence of God and resting on the promises of his word. Which leads me to my final point. God's promise in the midst of your shipwreck. God's promise. Do you know by the time that you get to the end of the chapter here 
the entire ship is breaking apart, completely being destroyed. The centurion knew that if a prisoner escaped, it was his life too. And so his natural instinct was to kill all of the prisoners. And in verse 43, he goes against his gut because of Paul. He's about to kill the prisoners and he stops because of Paul. Paul's testimony impacted and influenced the centurion man so much so that he himself was willing to trust his life to a prisoner. A centurion never trusted his life to a prisoner. It was unheard of in that time to trust a prisoner. Everyone on that ship was better because of Paul. Everyone. Think about the place that you work. Or if you're like, I'm retired, think about the place that you live. Think about the people that you interact with. Think about your very family. Would you say that their whole life is better because you're in it? Would you say that? I want to read one final verse. Because I think this is important. He said, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. They reached safety at the very end. God has placed you where you are in life for his purposes. So that you would proclaim him and point people to him. Reminding them of his faithful promises. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I will say with certainty that God's promises always come to pass. God's promises always come to pass. Even in the shipwrecks, God is faithful and true. For all of the men here in the text, except Paul, the loss of the ship was the worst thing for them because that ship was their security. That ship was their safety. I mean, the ship was all that they had. Yet in the end, it was just broken into pieces. Don't you see it? Don't you see in the text how God uses storms and shipwrecks in our life to show us that the safest thing that we could ever cling to is the promises of God? So let me ask you in closing. Do you see God's purpose in your storm? Whatever it looks like, do you see God's purpose? Are you at peace? Are you at peace in the midst of your storm? Do you know who you belong to and who you worship? Are you resting this morning in the promises of God? Are you resting? You guys all know who John Newton is, correct? Prolific hymn writer. Man who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader and a sailor, and a drunkard until he came to know Christ. And as I said, he wrote Amazing Grace, which is probably one of the most prolific hymns of all time. But he wrote another hymn that I felt I needed to read a portion of it this morning before I pray. He wrote a song called, Be Gone Unbelief, My Savior is Near. Is there anyone in here who knows the hymn? Be gone unbelief, my Savior is near. Great. 
He said that his love in time past forbids me to think that he would leave at last in trouble to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle, thus he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. By prayer, let me wrestle, thus he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Man, our Savior is Lord over every single storm and every shipwreck. And I pray that you walk out of here today knowing that you are not alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are reminded of the storms. We're reminded of the the shipwrecks but God, we can't forget about your presence. I mean, we, we acknowledge this morning, God, that we sometimes face storms of our own making. Or, or maybe even storms, God, that are out of our control or, or storms that are designed for a purpose known only to you. And so as we, as we are closing out this morning, we have to confess, God, our tendency to often ignore the warnings, our tendency to dismiss the wisdom, to rely on our own understanding. And so my prayer is this morning that we as a church body would walk in humility, that we would heed advice, that we would act with prudence. God, we we thank you this morning that, um, that the nature of suffering is multifaceted. And then we ask, Lord, that you would give us strength as a community of believers to bear one another's burdens so that we can fulfill the law. May our church become a refuge for those in need, a refuge for those where we provide support and encouragement and assistance, whatever that may look like, God. Use our experiences in this life to deepen our empathy and our understanding. And allow us, God, even to minister effectively to those who are in pain because of previous experiences. And I ask, God, that as we navigate the the storms of life, I pray that we would remember the words of that hymn that were just read, With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. God, we trust in your sovereignty. We know that even in shipwrecks, your promises will hold true because you do not leave us or forsake us. I keep coming back to a song, God, and it says that I know that you are for me. I know that you are good. And so, Lord, whatever, whatever the war looks like, whatever the storm, whatever the shipwreck, whatever the fight, whatever the pain, whatever the health problem, God, help us to look to your promises, to hold fast to them. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Um, We ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen and amen and amen.